All right, it's always fun when you get the chapters with all the names. So Genesis chapter 22, and notice in verse 1 it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. So notice we see the temptation of Abraham here. God's going to tell Abraham to sacrifice his son. And I want to point this out because people often get confused when they read that verse there where it says God did tempt Abraham. And I've covered this before, but I want to mention it again since we're in this chapter. But in James chapter 1, in verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, that when lust hath conceived it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So often what people like to do, and everybody likes to do this in pretty much any circle, they love to create rules for God. And so what they do, they take their one verse that has a statement that they like, and then they use it to kind of interpret everything else and create this rule for God. But the thing is that they often do is they don't get specific like the Scripture does there. And so notice how it says in James 1, it says that God cannot be tempted with evil. Okay? God does not tempt us with things that are sinful. God doesn't, you know, God may put us through a temptation or through a test or something like that, but God's not going to tempt you with something that's evil. Okay? If you're being tempted to do something like commit adultery, man, you're not being tempted of God in that. Okay? You're being drawn away of your own lust. If being enticed, if you're being tempted to steal, if you're being tempted to kill somebody, that is not of God. Okay? So understand, this does not mean, this is not creating a rule here showing that temptation is never of God. Okay? But no, temptation to do that which is evil is never of God. And you say, well, killing your son's evil. Well, not if God tells, you know, God told Abraham to do it. God decides what's sin and what isn't sin. Okay? Now, if you come and tell me God told you to kill your son, I'm probably not going to believe you. Okay? But at the same time, uh, there's, I don't believe there's a contradiction here at all. And so in verse 2, it says, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And this is another verse that people get confused with, because it mentions his only son. Well, there's a little problem with that. We saw in the previous chapter, Ishmael. Okay? Isaac was not his only son. It was not his only biological son. But let me ask you, why did God say, take thy son, thy only son? Why did God say that? And there's a very good reason that God said that. And that's because last week in chapter 21, if you'll remember in verse 10, it says, Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Abraham disinherited Ishmael. Okay, He got disowned. So we know that that's why God did it. And God acknowledged that because of the fact, too, that this was significant because, or, the, you know, God mentioned that because God know, he knows the end from the beginning. 
And God knew that this chapter, chapter 21, was going to be an allegory for something that was going to come into the future when it, became, when it came between Israel and the Christians. And we see that the Jews, who were God's people, who were the, who were the physical children of Abraham, we see how they persecuted the Christians. And as a result of that, and them not accepting Christ and not getting saved themselves, God ended up rejecting them. God ended up disinheriting them. And uh, in Romans chapter 9, in verse 6, a verse that we all know very well, this is a verse that's often forgotten by Baptists, it says, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So that's why God said that right there, because this here was a picture of something that was to come. And the child of promise, it was Isaac, and we are the children of the promise today. And the Jews got disinherited, like Ishmael. So there's a reason that you got people saying Israel still God's chosen people just because they're of the flesh and, you know but at the same time though then they need to explain why God said take thy son thine only son it's because Ishmael was disinherited and Galatians 4 makes it clear that that's that there's an allegory there and so another reason this uh, verse is very significant too where God tells him to sacrifice his son Isaac is God basically right here is telling him, you are going to sacrifice the promise that I have given you. Okay, So notice what it says in chapter 17. All right? turn, turn back to Genesis chapter 17. And let's take a look at this. Because this isn't just like, you know, this is more than God just telling Abraham to kill his son. Okay, Notice what it says in verse 17. This is after God tells Abraham he's going to have a son. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Okay? When Abraham hears from God that he's going to have a son by Sarah, Abraham said, How about Ishmael? Lord, just let Ishmael be the one. Because God had already promised before this event that God was going to make a great nation out of Abraham. God had already told that, and in his seed, all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. Abraham saying, you know what, Lord, just let it be with Ishmael, because I'm too old, my wife is too old to have any children. So he brings up Ishmael, and in verse 19, God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And hopefully in the future we're going to talk more about this covenant. But right here, this covenant that God had promised Abraham before, God said, I'm going to continue this covenant through Isaac, not Ishmael. Okay? So this promise of Abraham's seed being uh, multiplied as the stars of heaven, God specifically told him it's going to be through Isaac. Okay? All this has to happen through Isaac. So understand, when God told Abraham... Go sacrifice your son. He's sacrificing the nation that God promised. This, if he, he kills his son, this stops the prophecy 
being fulfilled in Abraham's mind. That's exactly what would happen. Isaac's going to be dead. He doesn't have any children. How can this happen? It can't be. But Abraham had such great faith. We're going to see. He believed God could even raise him from the dead. That's the kind of faith Abraham had. And so, notice verse 3. So it says, Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. Now, what's interesting here, the Bible says that God had, or God had told him to go to the land of Moriah. And God said, I want you to go to the land of Moriah, and I'm going to choose a mountain there for you to go and offer up your son. Now, I don't know if y'all think about this kind of stuff, but you know me, I'm very interested in the geography of Israel ever since I went over there. And so I paid, I, you know, I've always paid attention to this kind of stuff, but this location where Abraham takes Isaac may very, it was one of two places. One of two pl- things happened in this place. One place, this may have been the very spot where they built the temple. And now that's what the Jews believe over there today. In Second Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1, you don't need to turn over there, but it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father, in the place that David had repaired, in the threshing floor of Orn and the Jebusite. Hey, remember the story of David after that great pestilence came over the land? I believe 70,000 people died, and he offered that sacrifice. He did it. He bought it from Orn and the Jebusite. He did that sacrifice on the threshing floor of Orn and the Jebusite. Later, Solomon builds the temple there. That is the Temple Mount location on Mount Moriah. Okay? Now, in the story of Genesis, it does not tell us that this happened on Mount Moriah, but it says it happened in the land of Moriah, which would be later be known as Jerusalem. And God said, I'm going to have you, I'm going to choose a mountain for you to sacrifice Isaac. Now, it kind of makes sense that he would choose um, Mount Moriah where he knew the temple would be built someday. But you know what else he might have chosen? He could have chosen the mountain where Jesus died, Mount Calvary, because they're not that far apart from each other. If you go and you look where the temple uh, actually was today and where they believe Jesus died on the cross, they're very close together. And you can imagine, I mean, it kind of makes sense that God's about to... Show a great picture here of him sacrificing his son. Wouldn't it kind of make sense that he would go and tell Abraham to do it in the place where he would someday sacrifice his son? So I don't personally believe that this happened uh, where the temple was. I think it probably happened where Jesus died. That's that's my personal belief. Plus, that's cooler too. But that's just that, that, that's that's what I think. And you know, either way, it doesn't really matter. The picture here is clear. Okay, the gospel. Is crystal clear here in Genesis chapter 22. And I just tend to think that God did it there where he knew he was going to go. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you another reason here in just a moment. But look what it says in verse 7. 
And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Now, folks, that I love that verse right there. That verse says so much. That one statement there says so much. Now, folks, I'm not an English expert or anything like that. But, you know, I was thinking about it. When I, when I read that verse, I see multiple meanings. And I was looking at that verse trying to figure out, you know, what is the perfect meaning of that verse? Because he says, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Okay, now, what, So what does that mean? Does that mean God will provide a lamb for himself? Because they're going to go offer up a burnt offering, right, to God. But they don't have a lamb, so he's saying God will provide himself a lamb. So I guess you could say it kind of means that. You know, God will provide a lamb for himself. Another thing you could say, maybe he's saying God will provide himself as a lamb. Because think about this too. If that was the place where Jesus would eventually die on the cross, that's God providing himself as a lamb. So you can kind of see, I personally believe Abraham saying something prophetic here. I personally don't think this is so much about the grammar or anything like that. And obviously, I don't know the Hebrew, and I wouldn't be able to interpret that. But I think he's saying a lot of things right here. Another thing he could be saying, too, is God will provide a lamb for them, for Abraham and Isaac. But at the same time, too, isn't that exactly what God did when he provided Jesus as a lamb? It was for us, wasn't it? So really, any way you look at this, all, all of those interpretations are true, aren't they? And you get all that, really, in just one statement. And you know what? You can only get that in a King James Bible. Because, you know, I looked up some other versions. It's just, it's just amazing how superior the King James is to every other version. Listen, even if somebody didn't think the King James Bible was inspired and perfect, they've got to admit it's just so superior to every other version. You'd think they would at least acknowledge that. But yet all these theologian types, they like the ESV. And it's just, it is so, it, it, I mean, it, it, it doesn't even compare. But the ESV says, Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Now, I wrote down all these different things before I looked up these verses, but that is one of the things you can kind of interpret it that way. God will provide a lamb for himself. All right, so that's what the ESV says, but all you can get from that is that interpretation right there. In the New King James, it says, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb of the burnt offering. So basically the same thing as the ESV, but the NIV says, God will, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So it's just saying God himself will do it, is what it's saying there. Those are different. That's different than what the New King James says. That's different than what the ESV says. Okay? And I just show you that to just show you how inferior these other versions are to the King James Bible. Because every bit of those things, every any way you slice it, any way you look at it, with the way it's stated there in the King James, I believe Abraham was speaking prophetic here. It it all means it, it's all correct. 
Okay, and it's it's an amazing thing. You can only get that from King James Bible. It's amazing. But look at verse 9. It says, And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So, now think about this. Now, obviously, we know God's tempting Abraham here. God's, God's trying to do something. There's something that God's wanting to accomplish through this, not just for Abraham, but for all of us today. God's wanting to do something here. But, and there, I, there's so many things. One, another thing, he's, God's trying to show something prophetic here. He's trying to show um, you know, the gospel. There's no doubt we're seeing the gospel here in this passage. But think about this. There's no way God... Knowing what we know now, looking back, there's no way that God would have been able to let Abraham go through with this because of the fact that the whole point of Jesus dying was him dying for us. And that was the whole point. He was doing that for us. He was doing that in our place. God sent his only begotten son into the world. God was the only one who could offer up a sacrifice like that, who could do something like that. And so I believe, though, God had Abraham kind of go through the motions of this thing to tell a story and to be an example of faith. But at the same time, obviously, God was never going to let this happen. But Abraham didn't know that. Abraham did not know that. Yet Abraham was, in fact, going to go through with it. And look what it says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17. Because this this event right here, too, it's just, it's mentioned so many times in the New Testament because this literally is the greatest example of faith that we have, that has ever been seen by man. This right here is just the pinnacle of great moments of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see many great events, but there's no doubt this trumped them all. This beat all of them. This is mentioned over and over again. Whenever God wanted to bring up faith and talk about an example of faith, he's always going back to Abraham offering up his son. This was something that God saw and God has used it through an, as an example throughout the Bible. We find inspiration from that still today. And this is why God named Abraham the father of them that are of faith. He wasn't the first person to ever get saved. But this, this act of faith that he did was so great. God wanted, if God was going to associate faith with a man, God wanted to use Abraham. Because he definitely was the greatest example. And it says in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And when he had received the promise, or he that had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So the reason Abraham went through with this, this was not Abraham just obeying out of fear. Y'all understand this? Because, you know, it's good to have a fear of God, isn't it? You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Sometimes we all do things right out of fear of God. And that's okay. You know, that's okay to do it for that reason. But I don't believe that's why Abraham did this right here. Abraham, Abraham was convinced. He was so sure that God was going to keep his promise and make a great nation out of Isaac, that Abraham determined, you know what? God will just have to raise him from the dead. That's how confident he was 
in, in God's promise. He said, God will raise him from the dead. That's God, he's going to have to do something like that. That's what I'll have to do. If I kill my son, God will raise him from the dead because God can't lie. God can't break his promise. You know, this doesn't make any sense, but you know what makes less sense? God not keeping his promise. After Abraham had that son of promise, remember how we talked about that before? Every time they looked at him, every time they said his name and would start to wonder if maybe something was going to happen to him or he was going to die, they would remember his name that meant laughter and how they laughed at God when he promised that son. But sure enough, God came through. And you know what? I imagine Abraham thought the same thing. When he's called out to Isaac, when he would just think about his son Isaac and going and killing him, he would remember that name. And remember, I laughed at God when God promised him to me the first time. God, That same God promised to make of him a great nation. So even if he dies, God's just going to have to raise him from the dead. That's the kind of confidence that he had. You know, that, that's the kind of faith that we ought to have. Now, I'm not saying when a person gets saved that, you know, their faith matches Abraham's automatically. I don't believe that because this this was long after Abraham got saved. But you know, when we get as, as saved people, you know, there are uh, many people out there that would teach you you could lose your salvation. The devil he likes to kind of just get it in your head. You know what? You're probably not really saved. You're still struggling with sin. You're still having all these problems. You know, a saved person wouldn't do what you did. A saved person wouldn't think the way that you're saved. But you know, at the same time, while we might feel that way sometimes, we know God promised that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we know that we're saved. We know that nothing can change that. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God because if God says something, it's as good as already happened. And so this right here, this was, this was a, I mean, the, the greatest moment of faith ever shown by a man. And so, but notice this too, how in Hebrews 11, it says, and this is another lesson we can learn from this, Abraham accounted that God was able to raise him up from the dead. Okay? And remember this, nobody had ever been raised from the dead at this point. But Abraham still believed it could happen. Okay? It's, not as, it's actually not as big of a deal if we believe God can raise him. You know it's really not a big deal if we believe in, a, in the coming resurrection? Why wouldn't we believe it? We have the account in the scriptures of all the people that Jesus raised from the dead. We have the story of Jesus's resurrection. So, you know, it's not that it doesn't take a ton of faith to believe that we're going to rise again someday. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. You don't believe if you don't believe in our coming resurrection you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 teaches. So it's easy for us to believe that because we know about all the stories of the people Jesus raised from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. Abraham didn't have those stories. And yet he still believed that God could do it. That was an amazing thing right there. But notice though, Abraham was actually wrong when it came to the process of how God would keep his promise. Because he, Abraham thought, I'm going to go kill my son, and God's going to raise him from the dead. But now, is that what happened? No, that's not what happened. God ended up stopping him. And God ended up providing a ram for them to sacrifice in the place of Isaac. Okay? So Abraham, in his mind, he had kind of a, a plan 
of what he thought God was going to do. He was wrong in how things were going to play out, but he was right in believing that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. And you know, the truth is, when it comes to, uh, you know, end times and things, okay, you know, we all have a lot of opinions about how we believe that things are going to play out. And you know what? We might be dead wrong. We might be dead wrong and what the mark of the beast is. Right now, everybody thinks it's a vaccine, right? You know, or microchip thing. We could be dead wrong. We could all be off by a mile. There could be a lot of things. I mean, we could be wrong about Babylon. We could be wrong. There's so many things that we could be wrong about. But at the end of the day, as long as we believe that Jesus is coming back, we're okay. When it happens, while it might not play out like one of my prophecy sermons that I preach, at the end of the day, as long as we believe that he's coming back, we're fine. We're going to be okay. And that's the way, that's the attitude we need to have. That even if it means the guillotine for us or it's something else that we're not thinking of, you know, either way, we're just going to trust God through it all. And I don't think God's going to fault us if we got a few details wrong. You know, and because, you know, God doesn't always show us the whole picture. Okay? We just kind of get one step at a time. And so we just need to mainly believe that Jesus is coming back. And that, that's the most important thing. So look at what it says in verse 11. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. Now let me ask you a question. Notice how he said, Now I know. So let me ask you, did God not know before? Did God not know if Abraham, you know, was God sitting up in heaven thinking, you know, I wonder if I tell Abraham to go sacrifice his son. I wonder if he'll do it. Is that kind of how God works? But that's what it says right there. It says, now I know. And so, you know, the question to or answer the question, did God know before? I believe it's, of course, God knew. Yes, God knew. But if God didn't let this play out, then Abraham wouldn't have known. And you know what else? We wouldn't know. We wouldn't, we would have never known. If God didn't let Abraham go through with this, we would never have this story as inspiration. It would just be knowledge in in God's head that if I would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son, he would do it. Okay. Well, what good does that do me and you? Sometimes we need to see these things play out. You know, I often wonder in my mind, you know, hey, would I lay down my life for the Lord? You know, I think I would. You know, I could run around, beat my chest and say I would. You know, I could do all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, and I I plan on it. But, you know, Peter, he was kind of planning on doing some big things right before Jesus was crucified. And he ended up denying him three times. You know, I really don't know for sure. You know, I definitely don't want to get cocky and act like I, I know what I would do. At the end of the day, I, I really don't know. But, you know, God knows. But how does that help me? How does that strengthen me? How does that help anybody else? How, how am I a good example to anybody? If God knows all the things that I would do, if I don't ever get a chance to put it to practice. So understand, God, he did this here. This was for all of us. This was for everybody from Abraham on. This was a great moment. And so look what it says in James chapter 2, because this is mentioned 
in James chapter 2. And there's an important lesson I want you to get here too. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Okay, and now notice, you know, and you've heard me preach on, on James 2 a lot, and we believe that in James 2, it's referring to being justified before man. And I personally believe what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 22 and what we've been covering is more evidence of that because, again, God knows everything, but God did this, had Abraham do this as an example for everyone else because God had promised, or it was, I forgot what chapter it was, uh, where God told Abraham, I'm going to multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Okay? So when you and I read that story... Well, that's a great story. You know, God's telling us what was in Abraham's head. But at the same time, we can't get a whole lot of inspiration out of that. But years later, though, we see that same man who believed on, who believed God and was saved. We see him so obedient, going and offering, being willing to offer up his only son to God. That's how much faith he had. And so by his works, his faith was made perfect. And we all can look at Abraham and say, you know what? That's a saved man right there. Y'all understand that? That's a saved man right there. And you know, we often, people are so scared of the bad preaching that often comes from James 2. And there's a lot of bad preaching that comes from James 2. But, and we know salvation is not of works, but folks, we can't see the heart. We can't see what is in the mind of somebody. If somebody gets saved and we never see any works, it doesn't mean they're not saved because we can't see. But are they going to be justified before us? How are we going to know? You know, don't you want to see that when it comes to people that you really love? Okay, if maybe a parent or a family member, if they get saved, you kind of like to have some assurance, wouldn't you? And doesn't it, doesn't it help? Doesn't it you know, make you feel better when after they get saved, you start seeing a change in their life? You start seeing them live for the Lord. Isn't that fulfilling? Doesn't then their faith, it's, when their faith is made perfect and you see those works, it's a comforting thing. But often people get saved, they make a profession, and they may very well be saved. I don't know. I can't see their heart. But if they never have any works, I'm always going to wonder, aren't I? I'm always going to wonder if that person is really saved. We're always going to kind of be questioning that. And they're not going to be a very effective Christian. They're not going to be a big help. And it, and, but, you know, because people kind of use this to, you know, use man's works as proof of salvation so they can declare people unsaved that don't have any works. That's out of line too. But, you know, we don't need to go taking it so far that it's like we're never allowed to talk about works. You know, it's, listen, we were saved, we were not saved by works, but God, it says, by grace saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And you know, you better believe we're going to talk about works. 
around this church because as a, as a congregation of believers, we have been ordained by God to do good works. So if we have some people that come in here and they're like, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, I believe on Christ, and then they just have no, they don't do anything good. In fact, they're doing bad works. You know what we're going to do? We're going to put them out of the congregation. That's what we see going on in 1 Corinthians. You had a man in there that had his father's wife that I believe was definitely saved, but you know what? God told him to remove him from the church. Okay? Now, a lot of people today, if you did that, if you treated somebody like that, or if you treated somebody as a heathen or a publican because they're not doing anything that the Bible says to do, or they're not following the leadership in the church, you know, they would accuse you of teaching some kind of work salvation. And, you know, there's a lot of preachers out there, too, who, you know, they often do that. They're, they're constantly questioning people's salvation because of the lack of works. And, you know, that's wrong. But at the same time, how else are we supposed to know? You understand that? How, how are we supposed Because we, we can't see the heart. We can't see the heart. And if you think that, you know, just having somebody who knows how to quote the checklist of things we believe, if we think that's good evidence of salvation, we're wrong. Because we've seen a lot of people, even in the new IV that everybody thought was saved, that now everybody's like, I don't think that person was saved because they're preaching weird stuff. They're involved in all kinds of heresies and everything. But at one time, they were saying all the right stuff. And in this movement, you've got a lot of people, they know all the right things to say. Hey, congratulations. Anyone can memorize a script. Have you ever watched some of these Christian movies before? And when you're watching those movies, you like swear these people are Christians. Like these people must be Christians. No, they're just really good at acting like it. That's what a good actor is able to do. A good actor can act like a Christian. When I was younger, I would watch some of these movies and think these people must be saved. These people have got to be saved. I mean, you know, and then I find out about some other movie they were in where they just, in there, and I find out how they were in real life. They were just like trash people. I'm like, how? You know, they're a good actor. You know, anybody can put on a show. Anybody can learn all the right things to say. Anybody can do that. And there's a lot of play actors, even in the new IFB, they know all the right things to say, but they're as lost as Adam's house cat. There's no doubt about that. And they always reveal themselves, too. It's always going to come out. It's always going to show. And and so what, what do we all hope to see with people? What is it we all hope to see? Even the preachers that do a bad job preaching this stuff, they just want to see some good works. They, they get frustrated, and, it's, and I've, nobody's preached against this more than me. Say, I hate when preachers get up and they preach weird stuff from James 2 just to make people in the audience and their congregation doubt their salvation. Constantly preaching that just to get people saved over and over again. That is so wrong. That is out of line. And I'm not trying to make excuses for them, but the reason they do this a lot of times is because of the fact they're just frustrated because it's like, why don't these people ever get their acts together? You know, why don't they ever have any works? And I personally believe, too, that one of the reasons that that happens is because preachers are failing to teach people how to overcome the flesh. They, they, people have this attitude that once you get saved, sinful desires go, go away. Wrong. Listen, you're made out of the same flesh after you get saved that you were before you got saved. And the reason the people in these churches are so out of line and so wicked is because they're just walking in the flesh. 
You know what? They need to discipline themselves, and they need to walk in the Spirit so they won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But these preachers are acting like it's just like this, you're just naturally going to do these all these good things. No, you're not. Okay, I don't think it was easy for Abraham to do what he did. But you know, he did it. And he did it by faith. And so because he did this thing, this was an example to all of us. And Abraham was justified by his works to us. Okay? What God knew way back when God told Abraham, I'm going to multiply your seed. What God knew way back then, we didn't learn until later when he offered up his son. That's when he was justified to us. And you know, you don't have to be justified to me to go to heaven. But you do have to be justified to me to be a help to me and to you know encourage me in the fact that you are saved. If you're going to be a blessing to other people in the church, if you're going to make, if you're going to be a blessing to other saved or even lost people, okay, you're not going to help lost people by going and getting saved and then living just like them. You're not going to help them with that. You know what? They need to see some works. They need to see a change in your life. Because why would they think that God can give them victory over their sin when you don't have any victory over your sin? Why would they think that? You know what? You need to put something on display for everyone else. And if you're saved, God knows it, but nobody else does. So you're not doing any good for anybody else. And what you need to do is you need to start doing the works. And thank God that is exactly what Abraham did. Abraham went and did all the things that God said and so it says in verse um, 12, or turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, so right after Hebrews 11, right after it's told us about all these people of faith, it says in chapter 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Okay, now what is that great cloud of witnesses? Often people think, well, those are the people looking down on us in heaven, watching over us. Well, no, that's actually not it. Okay, The great cloud of witnesses, specifically here, are the people that we read about in Hebrews 11 who had faith, who did great works and accomplished great things. Their testimony tells us that, you know what, if we have faith, we can see great things done. They're a witness that God keeps his promises. Abraham, his story tells me that, you know what? You can always trust God no matter what. He's a witness. He, he, he's a witness to that. And so we all have... Now, I do think at, uh, at the same time, you can kind of talk about people you knew uh, that are dead now and in heaven. You can kind of look at them because they, they were witnesses that God was faithful I think about some of the preachers that have been in my life that were a blessing to me that to the day they died, their testimony was God is faithful. God is good. You'll, you'll never regret serving the Lord. Preachers that I knew that died in their 80s, went to their grave preaching the gospel and no regrets. You know what? They're a witness to me that it's, it's worth it to serve God. There's men like missionary Bob Johnston that, that preached here years ago who's dead and in heaven now, who went through some of the most horrible things that any of us could imagine while he was over in the mission field. But you know what? He, he's a witness to me 
that even going through the hard times, God can take those things and he can work it for good, that God can give you grace to get through those hard times. There's people that I know that have lost family members. They've lost loved ones. They've been through one tragedy after another, things that I can't even imagine going through. But you know what? Their testimony is a witness to me that God can get you through it, that God can help you. And so that cloud of witnesses, that that's examples that we have of people telling us that, you know what, faith works. Faith is, it's always good to have faith. You'll never regret trusting God. I promise you, Abraham was probably having a rough day when he's taking Isaac up that mountain. But every, every day after that, he would tell you, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did what God told me to do. And so that's what that cloud of witnesses means. Now look at verse 13 of Genesis 22. And it says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And there's no doubt we have a picture here of the substitutionary death of Christ. Okay? Isaac was the picture of Christ, but now we kind of have a picture in a picture here, and we see a ram that takes the place as a sacrifice instead of Isaac. And Jesus Christ, he took our place on the cross, didn't he? Jesus took Isaac's place. Maybe in that very spot. In that very spot where God was going to kill, or Abraham was going to kill his son, God stopped and said, nope, I'm going to kill my son in this place. That's, that's an amazing thing to think about right there. And so notice in verse 14, it says, And Abraham called the name of the, that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. That word Jehovah-Jireh means the Lord will see to it, or the Lord will take care of it, or the Lord will provide. So the sacrifice that was needed, God saw to it, God provided it. God provided himself a lamb, and that's exactly what God did almost 2,000 years later with his own son. God saw to it, God saw to our need that we had, a need for a Savior, a sacrifice that was needed for us, to cleanse us of our sins, God saw to it, God took care of it, and He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, Jehovah Jireh, that, that's what that means. What an amazing thing that is. And so verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thine son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And I want to point this out because a verse here was quoted in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 6.13, it says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. So that's a reference to Genesis chapter 22 right there. And this event right here is why Abraham was known as the friend of God. We are friends with people that we have something in common with. When we have a common interest, when we have common likes, when we have common experiences, okay, those, those things we have in common are often what bring us close. Okay, just like I just kind of automatically make friends today when I go in public and I see other people without masks. 
in the store because there's so few of us. You know, it's like you got immediate connection, right? We got something in common. And you know, the truth is, the more unique that thing is, the more, you know, it matters, right? Well, think about this. You know, Abraham was somebody who was willing to offer up his son as a sacrifice. Who else is God going to have that in common with? I'm not going to offer, I don't want to offer up my son. I have no desire to, I wouldn't offer up my son for anyone. God was willing to offer up his son, his son for the whole world. Abraham was willing to offer up his son just out of obedience to God. It, and God never asked anybody else to do that, that type of thing. But God did ask Abraham and he did it. He's probably the only person ever would have been willing to do it. And because of that, he was a friend of God. Because they had, they had something very closely in common. So it says in verse 19, So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So I want to mention this too before I go on. So Abraham was called the friend of God because of this. And this is a reminder too that after we get saved, God wants more from us. Okay? Salvation's free. If you get saved, you're saved. Whether you do anything for God or not, but folks, God wants you to do something. God has something for you, and if you do something for God, God rewards you for it. Hey, anything you do for God is going to be rewarded. He pays us for the things we do, and He pays us good. Everyone is always glad that they serve God. Nobody ever regrets serving God. I don't know anybody that's ever regretted serving God. Nobody does. But God does. God wants more from us after we get saved. And it's not a bad thing. The commandments of God are not grievous. And you know, and I, I've heard other preachers say this before, and I think, it's, I think it's a true statement. But when you stop and think about it, even if there were no heaven, even if there were no eternal rewards, isn't the Christian life better than what the world has? I mean, when I stop and think about it, and I just use a little bit of common sense, even if you convinced me tomorrow there was no heaven or hell, I don't think I'd want to change the life that I'm living. It's better. I don't see the world outdoing us in happiness. Even when they have their millions and billions, they're still not outdoing us. There's something about this life that just, it's totally worth it. So I, I wouldn't change it for anything. So verse 20 says, And it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah, have also born children unto thy brother Nahor, Huz's firstborn, and Buzz's brother, and Kemuel, the father of Aram, and Chizad, and Hazel, Pildash, and Jidlap, and Bethuel. And Bethuel beget Rebekah. These eight Milcah did bear to Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine, whose name was Reuma. She bare also Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Miaka. So what we're seeing right here on this last part is another example of genealogies so we can understand the history of different people groups and where they came from. And we're about to transition now from a focus on Abraham to a focus on Isaac. Because Isaac is the one that God promised, I'm going to continue my covenant. The whole Old Testament, it's really all about that covenant that God made. And as it's moving through the line, and ultimately goes to Jesus Christ. Okay, starting with Noah, we see that covenant and it keeps on going down the line, and so now the focus is on Isaac. So it gives some genealogies here because we see we're going to see Isaac marry Rebecca in a couple chapters. That's where Isaac ends up getting his wife, and uh, it's Rebecca that bears Jacob. 
that God was going to change his name to Israel. So this is all important. God knew these things were going to happen. Bethuel, uh, you know, he, he's, a, he's a character we see later. Laban becomes a major character in Jacob's life, who is the son of Bethuel, the brother of Rebekah. So all these things, all these genealogies are mentioned on purpose because they're showing we're, we're following the covenant. That's what we need to be paying attention to throughout the book of Genesis is who is the covenant with. God wanted, Originally it was going to be with Abel, but Cain killed Abel, and then it ended up going to Seth. And then with Seth, after Enos, then began men to call on the Lord. We see Noah, it ended up being continued with Noah, God, and then God makes a covenant with Noah after the flood. And then after that, we see one with Abraham, and then it's going to go to Isaac. Focus is going to be on him, not Ishmael, Isaac. He's going to go to receive Jacob and Esau. Focus on Jacob, not Esau. And so we're following a covenant because we're trying to get to Jesus Christ. Because that's where all the promises come from. All these promises that were made throughout these covenants, they all get fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the focal point. You know, it, it amazes me how people will take the Old Testament and make the Jews the focus. I mean, it really, it, 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 it's really an amazing thing because actually the Jews aren't the focus. No, it's a line that's the focus because of who's going to come from that line. We're trying to get to Jesus. They're all just caught up in the Jews. The Jews, the Jews. It's like, no, wait a minute. It's not about the Jews. And they'll say things like, did you know Jesus was a Jew? Wait a minute. So is this something like Jesus was supposed to be proud of? Because I actually thought he had to be born of a virgin. And he was the son of God. You know, I thought, you know, if it was so great to be a Jew, then why couldn't a Jew pay for the sins of the whole world? Any of them. No, it had to be the son of God, didn't it? So, you know, he came through a Jewish mom, but that was because the promise was through that line. Okay? So the big deal of the Old Testament is not the Jews, it's the seed. That's what we're watching throughout the book of Genesis and what we see throughout the Old Testament and that what becomes the focal point when we get to the book of Matthew and the New Testament, and he's the focal point of everything today. Jesus Christ is the focal point. The law and the prophets are all about Jesus Christ. But some people can't see it. They just want to focus on the Jews. It's an, ama it's an amazing thing that people do that, but uh, it, it's just that Antichrist religion teaching is strong and very influential very dangerous. So with that, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that this will uh, just be a help and a blessing to us, Lord. Thank you so much for sending your son to die in our place. Thank you for this wonderful story we have of a man of great faith, Lord. That I, I pray you'll uh, let it inspire us to always trust you and just uh, know that you're going to keep your promises and do what you say you're going to